to receive your grace. In the name of Jesus, your Son, amen. It's good to be with you, Trinity. Uh, a lot of you might recognize me. Uh, you might know me from when I was growing up here. Some of you may know my parents, Larry and Faith, and my sister, Sarah. Some of you may even remember all the way back to the South Campus when I was a little kid running around the pews. But for those of you who don't know me, I'm Daniel Brummett. I grew up at this church, and I'm now a, well, I'm going to be a vicar uh, at the seminary down in St. Louis, and I'm studying to be a pastor. And if you remember last summer, I came and preached on the Good Samaritan and discipleship, and we talked about what it means to serve your neighbor. And so I kind of laughed when I saw this text and realized I was going to be preaching on discipleship again. So, last year I named my sermon Discipleship Sermon Number One, Serve Your Neighbor. This year it is called Discipleship Number Two, The Harvest is Plenty. See it? Good? All right, so let's dive into the gospel reading today in Matthew 9. And so to give you context as to what's going on here, we kind of have to back up a verse. So if we back up a verse, we see these words, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And so Jesus's ministry has begun. He's preached his famous sermon on the mount. He's going and healing people. He's teaching this new gospel. He has even cast out some demons, and he even calmed a storm when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. The ministry has begun, and crowds are flocking to Jesus everywhere he goes. Crowds are everywhere, and they're gathering because they want to hear this new teaching. They're gathering because they know that he's performing miracles, and so we have the sick friend, so let's bring him to Jesus. He's going to be the one who can heal them. The people are seeking Jesus. And so we read in verse 36, at the sight of the crowds, Jesus' heart was moved with compassion for them because they were troubled and abandoned like sheep without a shepherd. And so what does Jesus do? He calls a team huddle. All right, disciples, gather around. Gather around. And he says these words, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Great pregame speech, Jesus. What does that mean? It's kind of weird. Let me ask this real quick. Are there any farmers here tonight? Do we have any farmers? Okay, what's a harvest? It's the fruits of your labor. It's the gathering of the crop at the end of the growing season, right? And so with Jesus, are, is Jesus a farmer now? He's healing people. He's kind of like a physician. He's teaching people, so he's kind of a teacher. I also thought he was a carpenter. Is he now this professional farmer? But Jesus isn't talking about a harvest of crop. He's talking about a harvest of people. You see, Jesus has identified a problem. And so he sees that there are people who are suffering. He sees people who are in need and they're searching for help. He sees a people who have been oppressed time and time again throughout their nation's history, and they're now under Roman rule. He sees people who are sick, injured, lame, mute, dying, and he sees people who are troubled with guilt and shame, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And he knows that the crowds in front of him aren't the only ones in the entire land of Israel. But one man can't go reach an entire nation. 
But this isn't the problem. Jesus doesn't see the people as a problem. He sees them as an opportunity. He sees their hunger for help, and he sees that the harvest is plenty, and there's no one to go gather the crop. The problem here is that the laborers are few, and so Jesus calls his disciples and he says, pray that the master of the harvest would raise up laborers. And kind of a funny situation, he immediately looks at them and says, you're now the answer to your own prayer, go and do this. And so he sends his disciples, and the disciples become the first laborers in the harvest. And so I want to run with this line, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. And so let me ask you this. Do you think that statement, that statement is true today? Let's not think about the world. Let's think about just, just America. We'll just talk about our country tonight. Is that sentence true? In 1990, a group of nearly 55,000 people were polled, and I know statistics might be your favorite thing. You might find math boring. You might find numbers not very interesting, but just, just stick with me for a little bit because this is, this is really important to know. And so, in 1990, 86% of American adults said that they were Christian, while only 8.1% said that they were not religious. Fast forward to 2008 when another study was done. 76% said that they were Christian and 15% said they were non-religious. Right before the pandemic, 2019, Pew Research Center came out with another study. 65% of adults said that they were Christian and 26% said they didn't even care about religion in general. Is the harvest plenty? And the catch with this is that it's not even a question of what should I believe, it's why should I even believe? Why does religion even matter? And if I'm called to go tell the gospel to a group of people who don't care, am I just wasting my time? And, you know, we can look at these statistics and we can say, oh, well, you know, 65% over 50%, so over 50% of America is Christian. 65% is greater than 26%. That's not so bad. That is until you look at the generational breakdown from 2019. And we see that millennials, our next generation, are at 49% Christian. Less than 50% of our next generation is Christian. That's our future. Is the harvest plentiful? Is it really plentiful? And I've heard the comments, you know, we can dog on millennials all we want, right? Laziness, they don't care, right? We can dog on them, but I look at that and I see that's a people in need. And so do you see the trend? And Gen Z is supposed to be worse than millennials. And so you might still be looking at this and saying, it's not so bad, right? We're still the, the greater number. But the research here, it begs the question, why? Why are people leaving the church? Why don't people care about Christianity? And the research has found that the, the three most biggest reasons 
is that the church is judgmental, it's hypocritical, and it's old-fashioned or irrelevant. Those are, that's what people are saying. And you can look at that and say, well, but that's not us. That's those other churches. That's them out there. That doesn't happen here, right? But in 2019, the Missouri Synod, our synod did this research into our synod, into millennials specifically, and they asked, why do millennials stay and leave the church? And this was the number one answer. The number one reason people left the church was because the church didn't build authentic relationships where their questions, concerns, and issues were seen as important. And they were met with an ultimatum to conform to what we believe or get out. And as one of my pastor friends has put it, the church has become a breakfast club where if you're in, you're welcome, and if you're not in, you're an outsider. So is the harvest really plentiful, Trinity? I'm going to share with you one last statistic. Well, it's three, but it's one last study. So we're almost done with the statistics. This came from Barna, which is a religious research group, and they were looking at rising spiritual hunger in the U.S. And this was done last fall, and the results came out in January. Seventy-four percent of the adults said that they want to grow spiritually. Seventy-seven percent say they believe in some sort of higher power, and forty-four percent say that they are more open to God today than before the pandemic. And when you look at this generational breakdown, it is the same across the board. Does that look drastically different than 2019? Is the harvest plentiful? Absolutely. There is a growing spiritual hunger in the United States, just like back in Israel 2,000 years ago, when Jesus saw the crowds and saw people and he saw an opportunity. But many are lost sheep without a shepherd, and they need to be pointed to the one who can help. But remember, this isn't the problem. The problem is, where are the laborers? And I'm looking at 100, 150 right in front of me. Laborers don't just have to be pastors or teachers. We all can be laborers, and I want to invite you to join us as laborers in the harvest. Well, that kind of poses a question, right? So, so how do I be a laborer? What does that look like? And I could give you a whole list of ways on how we could do this, right? I could maybe preach next summer, discipleship sermon number three. What does it look like to be a laborer? I don't know. We'll, we'll see you next summer. I don't know. But I think this text offers a single word that's a really good starting point, and that word is compassion. And Pastor Will Murphy defines compassion as to suffer with one another. Jesus had compassion. He was the perfecter of compassion. We read these words in Romans 5 today. But God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
How much more than since we are now justified by his blood will we be saved through him from the wrath? And indeed, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more once reconciled will we, we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast of God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Dads, to, tomorrow, not today, tomorrow is Father's Day. So happy early Father's Day. I want to ask you a question. If one of your close friends was about to die and it took the sacrifice of your kids to save them, would you do it? What about a group of innocent people? Would you do it? What about your enemies, the people you don't like or the people who don't like you or the people who have hurt you time and time again? Would you sacrifice your kids to save them? I think that last one's really hard to wrap your head around. I wrestle with that. But that's what God did for you. The Father sacrificed his Son so that you would have life beyond the suffering of this world because there was nothing we could do to get it. We had made ourselves enemies of God. Our sin, our guilt, our shame— leads to a punishment of death. But God loved you so much that he sacrificed his son for you. And in his son, he promises you eternal life in heaven where there is no suffering. And so just as Jesus has shown us compassion, he calls us to go out into the harvest and share that same compassion. So what if instead of approaching people with judgment, we approach them with compassion and grace? What if instead of having sympathy, we had empathy? And sympathy, uh, Brene Brown, she's a psychologist, she defines these two terms. uh, Sympathy is, imagine someone in a hole, and you walk up to the edge of the hole, and you wave at them, and you say, I'm sorry, I hope it gets better, and you know, we kind of maybe give a 50% sympathy, like I'll pray for you, and maybe we don't actually pray. Or, we can do empathy where we jump into the hole with them, understand their situation, and lead them out and point them to the light. That's how she defines empathy. And to show you what I mean, I want to tell you part of my story from the last five years. So five years ago, I was a junior in college at Concordia University, Wisconsin, and I was officially diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And I didn't realize that I had been wrestling with it for my, pretty much my entire life, but it really showed its ugly head in the open when I was in college. I had burned myself out by taking on too many classes. I had burned myself out by taking on too many uh, extracurriculars. I had been hurt by some of my friends. I was trying to join a church, and they kind of dragged me along, and then they ended up hurting me as well. I was wrestling with my own guilt, my own shame, and for nearly a month, I was having like a panic attack a day, if not more. That's my suffering. And the voice inside of me said that I was broken. The voice inside of me said that I was alone, and it told me that I didn't have value, and I didn't have meaning, and I didn't matter.
And every day was a daily fight with my mind over worst-case scenarios, worry, fear, and it was exhausting, and I was losing every battle, and there was nothing I could do to win. And I began to doubt God, and my spiritual life was low because I was at a Christian college, but I felt isolated. And I didn't have a church community that I could join when I was there. And why would a good God full of love allow me to suffer? But God didn't see me as broken. He saw me as part of the harvest. And he sent laborers into my life to bring me back to him. There were times where uh, I could feel my panic attack coming on and the, the thoughts coming to mind, and I knew that like I couldn't be alone in my dorm room. So I would go to my roommate and best friend Noah and just be upfront and honest and say what was going on. And I just would say, like, I need, I need to do something with someone that's not this. And he was there. I had a supportive family who was there. I had several pastors who were there to offer me spiritual care. And one of them, my mentor, Pastor Dan Flynn, he's always been a strong voice in my life. He nudged me to go to therapy. And I'll tell you, If anyone ever tells you that you are weak for going to therapy and seeking help, they do not know compassion. And if that's your position, I'm going to ask you to reconsider it because that's not compassion. Because that Christian therapist that I saw for two years was my rock. And he walked with me for two years, and he helped me understand what I was experiencing, and he turned me to scripture, and he grounded me in prayer, and he asked me sometimes really good and hard questions that I had to wrestle with. But if it weren't for him, I don't know if I'd be standing here preaching to you. I don't. But he bore my suffering with me. And I'll never forget the words that he told me in our first session because it changed my life. He said, Daniel, God doesn't see you as broken. He sees you as redeemed. And you need to be still and know that he is God. He has conquered your suffering. He has victory over it. And so now I have this tattoo on my arm And it's the Hebrew for be still and know that I am God. And it's become my my battle cry against my anxiety, against my suffering. Because that's the truth. At the end of the day, God has conquered all of our suffering. God didn't see me as the problem. He saw me as part of the harvest and he sent laborers into my life to bring me back to him. And I share this with you today, not because I want your pity, but because I want to tell you about a glorious God who loves us so much and sends people into our suffering to point us back to him because he's the one who conquered it. And we all have our own story to tell. We all have suffering in our life. Some of you here have endured suffering in the past. Some of you have, are going to encounter suffering in the future. And some of you are in the thick of it right now. And to have compassion and to suffer together means that we can use that story to proclaim Christ crucified to our neighbor, whether they believe or not. 
And so with compassion, we suffer together. And as we suffer together, we point each other to the God who met our suffering with the loving sacrifice of his son. And we go into the harvest and we gather them in his name. And so as I conclude, I want to invite you to be a laborer with me. To go in the harvest and to preach from your scars and tell the people where their help can be found. And the first step I want to take together and I want to do exactly what the disciples did as their first step. And so if you'll pray with me, Heavenly Father, Master of the Harvest, thank you for entering into our suffering. We pray that you would raise up other laborers for your harvest and you would lead us and call us to those who do not know you so that we can proclaim your name throughout our community, our nation, and the world. Continue to equip us through your Spirit and we pray this through your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. Amen.